You're listening to The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, your escape to reality. Hello and welcome to The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Today is Wednesday, September 25th, 2019, and this is your host, Stephen Novella. Joining me this week are Bob Novella. Hey, everybody. Kara Santamaria. Howdy. Jay Novella. Hey, guys. And Evan Bernstein. Good evening, folks. So, Evan, what yeah. happened with all the storming Area 51 hubbub? That's right. It was this past weekend, wasn't it? Yeah. Oh, and there were millions of people signed up to the Facebook page, interested in going, definitely going. And the emergency services were notified, and two towns went on standby alert because they couldn't handle, they wouldn't be able to handle the traffic. How were they going to accommodate potentially hundreds of thousands of people coming into the desert? And how would they get the water and the food and the thing? And uh, <laughs> that didn't happen. Nothing. What do you mean? So what, like nobody came? It's not exactly that nobody came, but there are some varying reports that I've seen a range from 1,000 to 2,000 people at a couple different select locations in total actually showed up. And in this particular article by the Associated Press, it says about 75 people arrived at the actual gates of Area 51. 75, man. Oof. 75. That's, uh, that's, uh, oof, that's, whole stand back. That's quite a storming of Area yeah. 51. Did they Naruto run their way into it or not? I saw no one <laughs> Naruto running. However, two people were apparently detained by local sheriffs for various reasons. Evan, I saw a video of a news reporter with a bunch of people running with like jumpsuits on behind him. I thought that was at this event. Someone could have done that as a fake, but that might have been at the event. Well, maybe were- that was all 75 people. And there Those were a couple the of different events. There were competing events, you know, Alien Fest versus this other town's, you know, get together thing and a few other ones sprouted up. So you had a sprinkling of people here, a sprinkling of people there. So it depends on which in, which event you're talking about. In fact, in fact, the fellow responsible for the whole Storm Area 51 craze, if you can call it that, he a, a week ago <laughs> pulled out of the event that he was co-planning. Uh, because I think he either saw the writing on the wall that it wasn't going to be what it was going to be, and he was going to be in for it for a lot of money. His money backers also kind of pulled out. And instead, he and a bunch of people went to a a place in Las Vegas to kind of just gather and have their own little UFO convention kind of party. So there wasn't really a coordinated event when it was all said and done. But they could esti- – that's why there's a rough estimate about how many people actually wound up going into the desert and showing up. And they're saying anywhere between one and 2,000 people made the, made the trek and t- only 75 people at the actual gates. So it was a, bu- it was a bust. Well, I mean uh, it was a good bust though because you know there, I think a lot of people had a lot of fun like saying, oh, maybe we'll go. And you know there was a lot of that going on. You know, who knows how these estimates were made anyway. You know, people were saying 100,000 people. But I do think – you know, the last month when people were getting serious saying, you know, this could be really disastrous. Mm-hmm. You know, if I was re- young and adventurous and deciding I was going to go to this thing and I heard like there might not be enough food or toilets, I would say, hey, guess what? I'm not going. Yeah. Ultimately, I think practicality won the day and won the minds of the vast majority of people who may have otherwise were thinking about going. So, and it's a good thing because there were no. Real incidents. No one got injured per se. No one, no one got shot by any military personnel. Nobody tried to actually cross uh, into the restricted areas. So the best thing that came out of this was that moment at the Dragon Con live show 
where one of our listeners got up and Naruto ran across the room as a display for everybody else, which I thought was yes, that was so much fun. Thank goodness, because Steve actually asked <laughs> me to demonstrate a Naruto run, but fortunately I was wired up to the table with microphones mm-hmm. and things, and so that that kept me tethered. I don't know who it was. The girl that did it, I said right before she leapt out of her seat and did it, I said, I'll give you some free stickers. And, and then she did it, and there was a big hubbub. And um, I don't know if she ever came up and did it. So if you are that person, I will be happy to give you free free stickers, even a T-shirt. Ooh. Nice. And do we describe what a Naruto run is? It's that uh, anime style of running. You know how they always like they have their arms behind them and their head out in front, and then leaning and, forward. Very, yeah, they like to take basically fast, small steps. It seems that's right because hey, if you Naruto run, you're going so fast that yes. even a army with guns and bullets cannot stop you all. <laughs> uh, so, guys, I have a five to ten year update on a previous topic that we covered. I predicted this five to 10 years ago that you would have this. Yeah. <laughs> so in 2009, so exactly 10 years ago, we talked about the dino chicken. You guys remember the dino what? chicken? What? I do. That was, let me oh, see if I like can de-extinction? remember. de-extinction? It's de-extinction, kind of. It's basically the idea that you're going to reverse engineer a dinosaur from a chicken, right? That, yeah. Because birds are dinosaurs, so we're going we're gonna to reverse engineer non-avian dinosaurs by undoing the genetic changes that occurred in order to when you know, during the evolution of like theropod dinosaurs, you know, dinosaurs that are similar to the Velociraptor, into the the whole you know Avis group. But actually, they're not really doing that, right? They're not necessarily. The research does not involve like a direct attempt to reverse engineer. Uh, a dinosaur from a chicken or from a, any any bird. What they're trying to do is understand the evolutionary pathways that were taken from the theropod dinosaurs to birds. And this this method is helping them, right? Because evolution doesn't just like wholesale swap out genes, right? It doesn't overwrite like a whole, it's not like code, right? We just take out this piece of code and put in a new piece of code. It tweaks what's there already. And sometimes that could be as simple as turning a gene off. So if that's all you're doing is turning off a gene, then all you got to do is turn it back on, right? But so the information's there. It's just a matter of what's active and what's not active. But not exactly, right? Because not all of the changes are turning off genes. Mm-hmm. And also, once a gene is turned off, there is no selective pressures to keep it from mutating. So it then starts to drift fairly quickly away from its original state, you know? Yeah, duplication of genes could also d- achieve the same yeah. result, right? You can get, yeah, duplication, recombination. You can get chromosomal changes. Yeah, there's lots of things that could happen that are not easily reversed. But so there is an update, though. There was a study in 2015, so about four years ago, six years after uh, I think we last reported on it. Uh, this was done by researchers at Yale. Dr. Bullar, B-H-U-L-L-A-R. He is looking at the evolution of the bird beak, right? So he identified genetic changes between uh, reptiles and birds. And and then he essentially um, did genetic alteration in an attempt to force a chicken embryo to go down a more dinosaur developmental pathway, and he reports that it worked. Hmm. Now, he he only allowed these chicks to grow inside the egg long enough to identify the anatomy, 
right? Mm-hmm. He didn't he didn't hatch them. He didn't let them hatch. He did Why? not let them hatch because well, that wasn't it wasn't part of the experiment. And dinosaur he, babies. Well, he said they, he said they probably would have been okay. They, the anatomy what about the gross looked, curiosity. I mean, yeah. doesn't that count for something? Yeah, but don't you think like an ethics board would need to be like, yeah, hi, let's all have like another conversation about this. It was probably easier to get approval if yeah. say, we're going to sacrifice them once we look at their anatomy. Yeah, because I'm pretty sure everybody on that ethics board saw Jurassic Park. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, well, you just want to eat a dino chicken sandwich. <laughs> <laughs> All right, but this is the change. This is a very this is very fascinating. So what he what he discovered, and again, this is how this research can inform our understanding of evolution. It turns out that the bird beak is really just a super overgrown premaxilla, right? So the premaxilla mm. is a pair of very small bones that sits in front of the face and houses the incisors, right? Okay. So these two bones became massively elongated, forming the beak. Oh, cool. Wait, wait, uh, you need to, wait. We need more details. So what the hell? What is this premaxilla? Is it only around uh, some teeth or one tooth or yeah, why the is it there? The incisors. incisors. Those are why two teeth. So there's two bones. So these two bones in birds became massively elongated, forming the beak, but they still had a jaw full of teeth. They just had a beak in front of. Their jaw full of teeth. And then in some of the lineages, including the one that led to birds, the jaw, the the teeth went away and the jaw went away. The jaw sort of shrank. So then it became underdeveloped. And then you were left with just the beak, right? But some of them, Mm. right up until the asteroid hit, right, there were clades that had the beak and the teeth, you know? Wow, cool. Okay. But where's my pre-maxilla right now? In humans, the premaxilla bones are fused with the maxilla. They do actually still house the incisors, but they're just all fused as the maxilla bone. So that it's a, it's a good example of how evolution works with the material at hand, right? They can't just invent a beak out of whole cloth. It has to form out of something that was already there. And it, yeah. right, right. it doesn't have a designated purpose like, oh, let's grow a beak so the bird can eat easier or right. you know, be more effective. But what, yeah, but once they had the beak, it was well adapted to a, to a lot of different lifestyles, including eating insects. And apparently, again, whether it was just luck or chance, or they just happened to be better adapted, you know, the birds survived uh, the extinction and the toothed dinosaurs did not. The, this uh, researcher is pretty confident that this research will continue, Dr. Bilar. He said, essentially... This is happening in 15 to 20 years. We're going to be able to have to create something that is significantly dinosaur-like, you know. He says it's not going to take half a century. It's going to take decades. So it's, you know, he's thinking on the order of 20 years. But again, we've heard that before, right? 20 years is that number where it's like it's so far in the future you can't really even say. But yeah. But he thinks that if we could make chickens grow a jaw with teeth instead of a beak and grow a tail instead of a bony tail instead of feathers and hands instead of wings. Yeah, you pretty much got a velociraptor, you know? Yeah, but we're not really going to, well, that's <laughs> a whole other question about whether or not we're going to allow this kind of research. I mean, he says he's doing it. You know? No, but I mean like beyond just like teeth jaws. You, you mean yeah. you mean uh, uh, approving that? Yes, that's what I mean by forward. allow. Yes, yes, yes. I mean like mm-hmm. the the... The, the people who make those decisions, yeah, the entire right. scientific community might be a little concerned. Now, if we That's make- why they do these things out on islands, out in the uh, <laughs> off, yeah, off no. Costa Rica. And, you know. <laughs> Steve, how big, how big are, are, is a velociraptor? 
So like a turkey? Now follow me on this. Yeah. Mm-hmm. If we made them big enough, mm-hmm. we could ride them as a zero emissions vehicle. No, they emit. They're going to have, you know, they fart. methane pouring out of yeah. them. We can stuff. do that already with like horses. No, yeah, but, but you could yeah. ride a velociraptor. I mean, you could literally ride a velociraptor to work. Yeah. Yeah, what's the novelty in riding a horse, Kara? That's been been there, done that. I yeah. Mean, but riding we, the Velociraptor. We domesticated it because it was domesticatable. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> you know, Kara, you lack, you lack a certain you could, kind You could of train vision. Velociraptors. Didn't you see that movie where they did oh, that? Oh, yeah, that documentary yeah. with uh, Chris Pratt. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> I remember that one. <laughs> <laughs> and so he also was saying at this time, this is a few years ago, that CRISPR is like making this research go a lot faster. It's a lot easier. Oh, so. oh goody. Of course. <laughs> <laughs> With CRISPR, we need a segment called one to two years. Yeah. <laughs> so this was 2015. I didn't see anything published more recent than that. But uh, so there may be more updates on our dino chicken uh, in the future. Tastes like so, a Lazaraptor. Yeah. Mm. Tastes like chicken, but a little gamey. <laughs> All right. <laughs> That's a good update. Let's go on to some news items. Kara, you're going to tell us about fat shaming. Yeah, and I noticed, Steve, that you actually wrote about this uh, today. I so did. that's convenient. I actually... Uh, came across it when Popside did a, a quick write-up on it. And I think that this really came on the heels of some recent um, punditry. Yeah, some recent hubbub. That's a good way to put it, about fat shaming. Some very kind of prominent people calling for not less but more fat shaming. And the argument, I'm going to give them credit. I'm going to go with principle of charity here, although I'm not sure hmm. that that's completely appropriate. I think the argument there may be based on the fact that there have been multiple studies that show that by and large, people aren't aware of like where they fall on the BMI. Um, mm-hmm. Also, I think by and large, I know that I came across this um, historically, but it wasn't mentioned in this article. By and large, people aren't aware of how many calories they eat in a day. It's just not a good metric that we have. And so um, when when kind of tasked with taking stock of our own bodies, um, generally speaking, we may think that we are um, smaller than we are, we may think that we are consuming fewer calories than we actually are. So with for the principle of charity, maybe I'm assuming that these pundits know about these studies and they think that maybe it's the job of, I don't know, the people, the job of the government. I'm not really sure what the argument is here to help people come to the realization of where their bodies are. But now we're going to talk about why that's like just so wrong. Yeah, but I'm going to, I'm going to, yeah, I fully support the principle of charity, but I don't think that's what's going on. I don't think that's what's going on. I think they're just straight up wrong. Yeah, I think they're just being jerks, but get get the, yeah, give the background and we'll, we'll say what's, why they're wrong. This is basically what I was going for there was like if I were in debate club in high school and my professor was like, hey, you have to be on the side of pro fat shaming. That's pretty much the only thing I could come up with. You know what Mm -hmm. I mean? But then we'll talk about why that's just by and large wrong. And it really comes down to a lot of things. I mean, some of them hopefully will feel like review at this point. BMI, not necessarily a great indicator of health. 
right? Mm. Even just basic. It's not worthless. Let's be clear. It's not worthless. It's not worthless. It does give us some information. It just only really gives us population data, not individual data. Sure. It's actually, yeah, you're right. It's actually really uh, helpful for like epidemiological conversations, things like that, like public health. But when we talk about an individual person, your specific BMIA is not actually that inclusive a number. It's like height, weight, Okay, maybe there are some BMI metrics that take into account age and, um, sorry, gender and also, um, what's the one, like frame size, like if you have like, you know, little tiny bones or like maybe your ethnicity. But the truth of the matter is there's so many other factors involved in like why your body is the way that your body or how your body is even. We'll get to the why in a second. It's more complex than uh, we always assume it is. So just very quickly, when you're doing epidemiological research, Evan, you have two choices. You're somewhere along the spectrum. You have a lot of information about a few people or a little bit of information about a lot of people. It's hard to get a lot of information about a lot of people. BMI is a way of getting a little bit of information about a lot of people. That's, but so that, but so don't use it. Don't, so, but it's not a lot of information, right? It's very, no. it's like it's height and weight. That's it. And so, but it's useful, you know, in that when you're looking at tens of thousands of people. Right. Absolutely. Just just may not say much about you because there's so many other variables that may trump the BMI itself, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And and I think that we can split those variables a few different ways. We can talk about biomarkers of health, metrics of health, and how there's a constellation of things that we can kind of add up and say maybe that this is the state of my health right now. But there's also all the different reasons that people might weigh X versus Y. And both of those conversations, I think, are important for um, for, for the conversation that we're having right now. So number one, the BMI is not a, a great metric at the individual level. Um, it it's just doesn't tell us that much. But number two... It's not just a behavioral thing. And like time and time again, research shows us this. It's not just about how much we eat. It's There's not a one-to-one correlation there. We know that there are genetic factors. We know that there are environmental factors. And even beyond that... Um, you know, one of the really important things about this new study that came out is the psychology of the conversation. And I think that's what we're going to eventually dive into. That's why we're talking about fat shaming today. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the biggest ones that people are writing about right now is this uh, meta-analysis that came out a couple of years ago where they looked at multiple studies and they focused on something called weight stigma, right? So people who are coming in to obesity clinics or to speak with their doctors about weight management and realizing that there was a very high correlation between biomarkers of poor health and weight stigma. So they were controlling for things like BMI. So you take two people that have the same BMI one of them has been bullied about their weight and has internalized that. You know, they've had a psychological experience where they're saying, you know, during my life, people have made fun of me. They've made me feel bad. That person is more likely to have worse health, like negative health consequences. So we're talking both psychological health, depression, anxiety, things like that, but also physical health markers, um, high levels of cortisol, um, you know, other things that we can kind of correlate with stress. Like they're not as healthy physically or psychologically, even if they weigh the same. So that tells us something. It tells us, number one, that 
there are negative consequences to fat shaming, it tells us, number two, that fat shaming is the definition of the backfire effect. Mm -hmm. If you tell somebody to eat less and you give them crap about how they look or about how they, you know, which, A, I don't even understand why anybody thinks that this should be an appropriate public health strategy. But, you know, moving beyond that, if you do that, it actually makes people, A, feel worse and B, tend to engage in in behaviors that may actually exacerbate the problem. Steve, one thing that I think that I really like that you did in your article um, is that you talked about really when it comes down to it, what is the constellation of factors that lead to obesity, especially Mm -hmm. maybe viewing it as a public health issue? Because you do point out at the very beginning, obesity is rapidly passing up tobacco use as um, the kind of causal factor. Maybe we could say correlative factor. I'm not sure how the studies are done, but I think they can probably use some statistics to show that this is causal behind um, negative health consequences. Yeah, right? preventable like, cause. Preventable. preventable. There, oh, yeah. you're right. Yeah, yeah, preventable. So we know that this is a real concern. The problem, I think, a lot of times comes out in messaging and it comes out in understanding what are the reasons that obesity takes hold within a population. We know it's getting worse and we know it's getting worse globally. So what are these reasons? Is it just that people are eating more? No. It's correlated with all sorts of things like low SES, like food insecurity, SES? you know, Social uh, sorry, socioeconomic status. status. So you, you, you actually see a kind of interesting curve when you look at poverty, you know, at the lowest of low levels of poverty, when people can't get any food, obviously, we see problems maintaining calories. And so you'll see that people are malnourished. But especially in like wealthier countries like the US, this is more rare. What you tend to see with poverty is that people are eating high calorie, low nutritionally dense food because it's cheaper. And it's easier mm-hmm. to get a hold of. And so you actually see obesity at these places where you would think it, it almost doesn't really, it's counterintuitive, right? Like people don't have much money. How are they eating so much? Food it's, is cheap. Calories yeah, are cheap, man. It's, and it's the quality of the food. Why are right? calories cheap, Steve? Why would you say that? I mean, we are really good at producing food, mass producing food. I mean, it's amazing sometimes. Sometimes I, I like for for a dollar, I could like get a thousand calories. You know what I mean? Like it's amazing mm-hmm. how much, how many calories you could buy if you don't care about the quality of the calories, as Kara was saying, right? If you just want, you can get a two thousand calorie meal for five bucks at a fast food restaurant. You know what I mean? It's really amazing. You know what blows my mind? How freaking cheap bananas are. Yeah, it's true. 15, I paid fifty nine cents a pound for bananas the other day, and it I, blows. It blows my mind how cheap meat is. Yeah. That's scary. Relatively speaking, yeah. Yeah. Like you watch a, you know, TV commercial and it's like the massive bloody blur burger, only two ninety nine. And you're like, what? That's what Why? I'm saying. It's, it's, it shouldn't like, be that inexpensive. You feel like eight, you can get an eight hundred thousand calorie burger, twelve hundred <laughs> calories worth of a supersized fries, you're only up to five, six bucks. You know, if you if you get a sugary drink, tack on another four hundred calories. For net for ninety nine cents, I mean it's amazing. You're you, you're you've exceeded your calorie budget. You're still in in the single digits, you know. And let's rem- remember that this isn't just about like making smarter choices. Like that's something that I think we need to push past this idea that people have a choice, or at least that the choice is one that is equivalently 
easy to make across the board because ultimately there are places all around this country and all around the world that, you know, we might consider quote unquote food deserts. I remember doing, I've mentioned this before on the show. I did a story about a community in El Monte who at the time, many years ago when I was doing that story for our local um, PBS outlet did not have a grocery store in the Mm. whole city. So when people wanted to buy things like produce, they bought them from the liquor store. What kind of quality of produce do you think that they were able to get their hands yeah, on? What kind yeah. of food is usually what stocking the shelves? liquor store sells produce? Exactly. Well, well liquor stores in places where there are no grocery, grocery, right. grocery stores. Kind of but what else is on lemons, the shelves in a see. liquor store? Yeah, exactly. Lemons and limes, right? And and again, I think that this is really this big struggle. And it, people are having political conversations about this right now for good reason between you know, quote unquote, personal responsibility and the responsibility of the community and society. But it's also, it's not just about poverty. When we're talking about obesity, there's a complicated web of cultural changes over the last 20, 30, mm-hmm. 40 years that, that affect all of us. Entangle. It's like yeah. more sedentary and there, we, we walk less, you know, in terms of getting around. Uh, we have less opportunity maybe to exercise than we did previously. And yeah, more more white of, collar. There's a job. lot of stealth calories out there. You know, it's uh, a lot. It's mm-hmm. so easy to accidentally overeat. You know what I mean? It takes more work to not overeat than it used to. And the the bottom line is that the there's the obesity has been been increasing over the last thirty forty years everywhere. So it's not just a sudden failure of of willpower, right? Yeah, and we also know that we there have been multiple studies looking at the actual construct of willpower, yeah. and there's like no correlation between willpower right. and obesity. Yeah, there's no yeah no with with independent measures of willpower and obesity. Mm-hmm. So yeah, absolutely, it doesn't correlate with that. It correlates with all these other cultural social factors, and also we know that if people try to just try to lose weight with sheer willpower, everyone fails. Right? It just doesn't work. Yeah. Um, so I think the 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 people who are defending, I've read articles where people are like pushing back against the whole fat shaming idea, saying, "What about holding people to personal responsibility?" Blah blah blah. But it's like it's not about that. It's because like they're looking at it as as if these people live in a vacuum. Yeah, it, it's, it's not right. It's not that they're not taking responsibility for themselves. It's that we have to identify the cultural factors that are contributing to this increase in obesity and try to reverse them, reverse those cultural factors. So, and it's it's complicated. We don't know what the answer is. Is the bottom line because okay? whatever we're doing is not working because the the epidemic is getting worse. But it, there was a very specific ad campaign that triggered a lot of this discussion. Cancer UK put out an ad with a, they showed a pack of cigarettes and then the brand name was replaced with the word obesity mm-hmm. and saying, you know, basically, you know, being obese is more of a risk factor for certain cancers than smoking. And then they were criticized for fat shaming and then people were defending them, saying, oh, you, so you're criticizing them for giving scientific information? It's like, nope, that's not what the criticism is. Yeah, They're, that's a straw a, man. Yeah, this is a public service announcement. Their goal is to reduce obesity contributing to cancer. And we but the scientific evidence shows first giving people information about the risks of of you know the health risks of their behavior does not work. Nope. People, we are not wired that way. Screw and information. It just doesn't work. 
So that if that was their strategy, with the science already says that's a failed strategy, do your research before you yeah. invest in a public you know, announcement campaign. It assumes that people don't already know, which right. is like, yeah, dude, I know that these cigarettes are bad for me. They I'm smoking know. them anyway. They're already motivated. You don't need to motivate them. You don't need to point out that they're overweight. All you're doing they is making know. them feel bad. Yes, right. So, so we, and I, I encounter this as a physician. Like I have some, I have to, it's my job to give patients information. They say, what can I do to fix whatever my low back? And I say, well, you could do a number of things. On the list is losing weight. Mm-hmm. And uh, once or twice, I've had patients actually accuse me of fat shaming them just for pointing out that you know losing wow. weight will help your lower back pain. Mm-hmm. It's like, okay, I, I know. So I understand. I understand where they're coming from because there's legitimate, uh, there's legitimate fat discrimination in medicine. You know, patients yeah. who are overweight uh, and obese. Um, sometimes get treated inappropriately because people are biased against them for being overweight. And, and I, their guard is probably that. up because they get yes. it from all sides all day, all along. So it's you're oh, already yeah. going to be very yes. sensitive to it when it comes at you. Absolutely. Yes. And what, what, they, what happens is like everything gets blamed on their weight, you know, no matter what it right. is. It's like it a knee jerk. It's like, oh, it's yeah. because you're overweight. But – but the thing is, some things do legitimately correlate with it. Like if you have type 2 diabetes, like, yeah, you need to, you need to lose weight to, to get that under control. That's just a yeah. fact. Um, and so we, we, but we need to find ways to communicate that because, again, my interest is in helping the patient. Not I'm giving them information as a means to an end. The end is that they are more healthy. But if, I give, if giving them information actually makes them less healthy, then that is not a good strategy, right? You can't – don't confuse the mechanism with the end. And I think that is what the critics of the fat shaming pushback were doing. They were confusing well, yeah. the, the mechanism with the goal. If your goal is to improve public health, this is not the way to do it. We have the signs to tell us this, is a, this will backfire. This will not only not work, it will backfire. And you're referring again to the, the campaign where they put that on the cigarette yes, pack. Yes. Yeah. And, and here's the thing. Are, we're seeing a significant reduction. Well, the whole vaping thing is, a, is another conversation, but we're mm-hmm. seeing a significant reduction in health effects from smoking because significantly fewer people smoke. You want to know why? Because it's not like acceptable to smoke anymore culturally. It's harder. It's, it's harder to do. Places, yeah. But at the individual level, that's had the strongest downstream effect. So it's really also, I think, a lot of times getting confused between a physician talking to their specific patient about things that, okay, what hasn't been working with for you? What has been working? Why is it so hard to keep the weight off? Have we tried this kind of approach? As opposed to a public health campaign, which ultimately I think is going to be more effective in, if instead of just talking to the individuals and saying, you, you, eat less, exercise more. What it should be doing is saying, okay, globally, what can we do as a society yeah. to make it so that it's not so damn hard for right. everybody to try and keep the weight off? Like maybe we have breaks at work and maybe we have, you know, a regulation about how food is is packaged and sold and you know whatever the case may be there's obviously a laundry list of things that exist at whether it's a soda tax whether it's a whatever and they all have their pluses and minuses but these kinds of things are these slow systemic changes that have probably occurred as a function in many ways of like modern capitalism that we need to start seeing how what have been the negative downstream effects and how can we mitigate those things no i tell you it's the uh, the calorie listings 
has really changed my behavior. I think I don't know about Me you too. guys. I mean, I go to the oh, movie theater. Yeah. Like, let's say uh, popcorn, two thousand calories. Like, are you kidding? There's no way nope. I'm going to go. I'm nope. going to go near that. <laughs> of course. Or, not. Yeah, that's more than my daily intake. Oh my god. It's just- <laughs> And and even like restaurants, like oh, not going to have that. I would have had that if you didn't list the damn calories. Thank you very much. <laughs> yeah. That's the point, right? Yeah. Well, and it doesn't compute for them. That's the thing. Not a lot. Not everybody thinks in terms of caloric intake. It's just it's not a meaningful metric for everybody. And it's uh, this like complicated layer on top of daily living where it's like, oh my gosh, that's I have to think about that too. I, I just want to eat. Life is complicated. I just need to get gosh. food in my yep. in my belly. You know, like I can't. And that's the thing that we forget, I think. Um, it, it's it's the fundamental function of what empathy really is, is when you walk down the street and somebody's frowning or somebody's smiling, you know, we must – the first reaction that we always have is what a jerk or what a nice person instead of like what is going on in that person's life right now that mm. brought them to this place. And I think that we have to remember that when somebody sits down to eat a meal. You know, wh- how much – of a rush are they in? How much money do they have in their pocket? What was happening today? Are they eating emotionally because they had a really bad day? Are they eating frantically because they have to get to their third job? Are they, you know, not eating enough because their kids, they wanted to feed their kids first? And these things sound extreme, like, like, oh, oh, that's like the sob story. No, that's like the everyday story for like a lot of people in this country. And we have to remember that. All right. Thanks, Kara. Well, everyone, we're going to take a quick break from our show to talk about our sponsor this week, The Great Courses Plus. You could listen to The Great Courses Plus. It's the perfect way to fill in those ugly gaps that everybody sees in your memory, Steve. Yeah, I could learn about photography, about pirate wars. I could learn to speak another language or space missions or maybe buff up on my formal logic. We talked about this course before, Introduction to Formal Logic. This goes over all the basics and it just, it's again, it's, this is the metacognition, the stuff we talk about all the time, thinking about thinking. People have been doing this for thousands of years and you could benefit from all of that effort and it's nicely packaged for you in this course, Introduction to Formal Logic. What I love about the Great Courses Plus is that these lectures, these courses um, can be consumed a bunch of different ways. So you you hear us say watch and you hear us say listen, and that's because you can watch them or there's an option to kind of utilize them in more like podcast form. You can take them with you on your uh, mobile device, on your tablet, you can consume from your computer. Pretty much however you like to take in information, The Great Courses Plus has you covered. So expand your mind, and I'm not talking about its volume. Sign up for The Great Courses Plus, and right now, for a limited time only, our listeners can get an entire month for free when you sign up using our exclusive URL, thegreatcoursesplus.com slash skeptics. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash skeptics. All right, guys, let's get back to the show. So, Jay, are we ever going to have warp drive? I mean, do you really want to ask me that question? You had a warp core breach once. It was a big drink <laughs> at Warp's Bar at the Las Vegas Hilton, right? That is actually true, Evan. That was a great drink. That was like a giant orb with the, the very tippy top cut off at the How Star many Trek calories Bar. was it? Oh, my God. <laughs> oh, yeah, exactly. There was no <laughs> calorie label on that drink. Okay, so, Steve, you're asking me this profound question, and I'm going to yes. give you a profound answer with a disclaimer. 
this is edgy. This is, I don't want to say fringy because, it, you know, I don't really think that's a good descriptor for it. But it definitely is something that is is on the absolute edge of speculation and, and research being done to see if we could actually achieve speeds faster than than light. Now, let me explain to you before people really freak out, because right now a lot of you should be freaking out hearing me say that. But it's nothing that's going to happen even remotely soon. This is like in the distant, distant... 20 years? No, like, you know... Hundreds of years, I would I would think. Or thousands uh, of years. You know, what we're really, at its core, what we're really asking here is, are there any laws of physics being broken in order to pull this off? So let's get into it. So scientists, you know, they're saying that this is legit. It's hard, it's hard living in a universe where we can't travel fast. It really- we, Tell me about right? it. Right? It Ugh. sucks. And it's really going to suck for future generations because, you know, your girlfriend might live at the edge of the, the solar system and, you know, you want to see her. What are you going to do? And burn we're burning out the only- uh planet we know so <laughs> that we can live on right now so getting off this rock is more important than ever right so this past august a presentation made at this year's american institute of aeronautics and astronautics propulsion and energy forum in Minneapolis discussed of all things like we said the warp drive the warp drive i can't believe i'm actually talking about this so joseph agnew who is an undergraduate engineer and researcher at the university of alabama in huntsville he's in the research center there he gave a presentation at the forum and one of his studies that he presented was entitled an examination of warp theory and technology to determine the state of the art and feasibility and he describes a warp propulsion system in that talk that he gave now to a person who really understands physics, he said, it's relatively simple. Not to people like <laughs> me, but you have to have a degree in order to find the simplicity in it. So the, the idea, of course, is completely theoretical, but it could maybe, maybe, maybe possibly be valid in some crazy interpretation. So take a look at this. First of all, this the concept is called a uh, Alcubierre drive which was named after a Mexican physicist who created the idea back in the 90s. The basic concept is that, that if space-time could be stretched like a wave where it has a, a buildup on one end and then a, a expansion on the other end, um, and the ship was inside of that, like, you know, think of it maybe as a bubble or whatever, this might work. Now, the theory states that the spaceship... Uh, rode, rode it like a, a wave, it could travel faster than light, and that's actually called a Alcubierre metric, right? So, so the ship is inside the wave that's created. So the ship is not actually supposed to be moving faster than the speed of light, and there's the trick. That's the rub. That's the secret sauce that the, the, uh, the physicists are talking about. The ship is standing still. Space-time is being warped around the ship. That's the concept. Now, you can you can kind of think of this. Let me go back to the surfer analogy. Imagine a surfer who's not moving, but the ocean is moving underneath them, right? So the surfer is, is staying in the same place, but everything else is moving. You don't really have to move all of space-time. You, you just have to bend it the same way that gravity does. Now, think about that. I found that the idea that it's really like the, the idea of gravity, and because of LIGO, we now know that, that gravity waves exist and that they're measurable, and that was a, a major milestone for uh, people to believe that this type of research might not be a completely waste of time is since since space time is movable or or bendable now of course you know we're talking about one of the forces of nature here gravity but could humans do something to affect gravity and we don't have to affect a lot we don't have to affect space time in a large area like i said it could be just around the ship you know relatively small area so how would we do it so the fun thing about this is that 
the researcher I said earlier, Joseph Agnew, he's a Star Trek fanatic, right? And he was heavily inspired by the technologies that he saw on the show. So let me let me read a quick quote here that Agnew said. He said, in the past five to 10 years or so, there has been a lot of excellent progress along the lines of predicting the anticipated effects of the drive, determining how one might bring it into existence, reinforcing fundamental assumptions and concepts, and my personal favorite, ways to test the theory in the laboratory. Now that we know the effect is real, the next question in my mind is, how do we study it, and can we generate it ourselves in the lab? What he's talking about here is being able to even on a very, very small scale, have enough energy available in order to warp space-time. Now, there was an estimate done, I think 15 or 20 years ago, saying that if we were going to do anything like this, that it would take as much energy as the universe has inside of itself, right? Yeah. Hmm. That that's, estimate, I think the last time we talked about it, that's what that's was the state of the art. I have good news, Steve. Yeah? It's it's shrunk, half the amount of no, energy? No, that <laughs> estimate has now shrunk down to the, the size of Jupiter. Oh, really? Now... I don't like talking in, in so non-specific terms, but like I'm, I'm asking questions like, what are you talking about? What needs to be the size of the universe? The, are you saying the amount of energy that could be stored in the universe versus the amount of energy that could be stored in a mass the size of Jupiter? And I think what they're actually saying is that you would need that much exotic material in order to do this. And when they or would say, you need to convert the mass of Jupiter entirely into energy? That's what it seems to me, yeah. It, that, that might be it. But they did say like the – exotic material that's the mass of Jupiter. So another cool thing that they said was, you know, they need to create a warp bubble, right? So so what would you need to do that? And here's a list of things that they said that we would have to have significant investments in. Quantum physics, quantum mechanics, metamaterials, the creation of when I when they say superconductors like like really advanced superconductors, uh interferometers and magnetic generators. And of course, and the, not to ever be forgotten, Money. A, <laughs> a, ton a really, of money. Good, a really good BLT sandwich. Right. <laughs> no, an MLT, a mutton, lettuce, and tomato sandwich. Yeah. So look, it's in the news. It, it might not be completely bonkers that one or two or a half dozen scientists, there was, there was one scientist at NASA that looked it over, said, yep, you know what? This isn't as crazy as it seemed like it did 20 years ago. It's worthy of more time and energy. You know, definitely not billions of dollars, but definitely, you know, some funding just in case, because you just don't know. Because if you're not breaking the laws of physics, that's a damn good rule of thumb to say, hey, at least we're like yeah. not you know, trying to reverse engineer reality here. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting to say, to say that, I mean, we couldn't achieve this in you know millennia of research, but there could be civilizations out there that are potentially doing this, and then you could then you know look for the you know the side effects the of that technology, yeah. the signature. But the other thing, Jay, that you're that that the Alcubier drive does that one effect that was calculated is the the uh, as you're traveling through this warp bubble, it could potentially pick up a lot of the energetic particles that are that are flinging through space. And release them when you reach your destination. So then the, the side effect would then be that when you re, when you arrive at your destination, you would utterly destroy it, like on like a planet. <laughs> so it's uh, a so, weapon. So so yeah. So it could be considered a weapon, and uh, and not a good way to travel because basically you can't really care about your destination because you could just that's, blow it apart. That's funny. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm watching. I watched the first season of some Netflix science fiction show that was kind of mediocre and the science was was not very good but they actually got that right they had a warp bubble to go faster than light and they had that exact thing happen yeah where yeah they could use it as a weapon you know to blow up 
the whatever the, wherever they are if they direct it you know at the at a planet they could arrive and then destroy release the energy that they gathered and and blow it up that's interesting they must have looked that up somewhere yeah but there seems to be yeah yeah i'm sure it was yeah i remember that was in all in the news uh, a while back but i mean it seems to have a simple workaround just arrive a few light minutes away from your destination and and blow yeah. the crap out of you know empty space <laughs> and then just travel sedately yeah. to to your destination. I mean, it doesn't seem like such a uh, in what? In, uh, uh, well, I'm assuming I'm in assuming <laughs> that your craft would would survive yeah, would survive that. And, and uh, for, hey, would perhaps it? you know, perhaps not. But uh, I didn't in the reading I've done. I never got that indication that the ship would actually um, not survive. Mm. Just the you know your destination but it's but it is possible yeah it's just it's interesting that it doesn't break the laws of physics that there are non-trivial technical hurdles that may never be solvable that's just because it doesn't break the laws of physics doesn't mean that it could ultimately work right going from the universe's worth of energy to jupiter's worth of energy is a big change and that's just in 10 years so we'll if they keep you know massaging the, the, the theory you know maybe they'll they'll figure out a way to do it that's not not quite so crazy. Yeah, and the, the, to, for me the big the, the the funnest part is the idea that you you know, you are exceeding the speed of light but you're kind of not. It, it's like it's like how the far reaches of the observable universe can uh, move away faster than the speed of light because it's nothing nothing specific is moving faster than light but it's space, space itself and if you can warp space you could potentially travel faster than light yeah. if you know. So it does kind of sneakily get around uh, what you think might be a fundamental limit, but you're not really breaking any any laws of science by doing that. Yep. Okay. All right. Thanks, Jay. So, Evan, we we got this email, and it was, it was you know we were trying to figure out if this is real or not. The the is my TV spying on me? Oh, what did you find wow. out? What a big question. <laughs> and yeah, thanks to the uh, wonderful world of Reddit, right? Yeah. But in any case, it was just posted the other day. Here's what it says. Okay. TVs emit a tone during ad breaks that are inaudible to humans, but that smartphones are listening for. Now, corporate entities can link the TV and phone as belonging to the same person. It means government entities can play a tone through the TV and ping all the phones in the room, identifying the whole group. That's the claim. Allow me to paraphrase that claim a little bit. I think it needs a little clarity. So I'm going to give it to you in the form of an example. All right. Here's the example. Hey, guys, I'm going to download an app to my smartphone. I'm calling it the ABC app. And that's just an example. That's not a real app. I'm just painting a picture. Okay, so here I am downloading ABC app. Great. It's on my phone and it's doing what it's doing. What it's actually doing doesn't matter. Let's say it collects baseball scores for me in real time. Okay, so here come the baseball scores. So I'm home. I'm near my TV. TV's on and I'm watching Oprah. No, wait, I'm actually watching Dr. Oz. So Dr. Oz is on. Oh, no. And he's, he's going to commercial break. Now, what would you say if I told you that upon the Dr. Oz show going to commercial, an audio beacon suddenly emits from the television, which transmits at a frequency that my human ears cannot detect. And this audio beacon emitting from a signal embedded in the commercial is being detected by my smartphone, which is in the room with me. And the reason it's being detected it was because that ABC baseball app I put on my phone contains a feature specifically designed to detect that beacon. Ooh, smart. And there's more. It's more. So my ABC app detects the beacon. GPS puts a stamp on it, time, location, where the beacon was detected. 
and that information makes its way back to the company that designed the feature buried within the app. Now that company knows where I was, what commercials were being watched by me. How does it actually know what commercials? Well, because a feature of the app recorded the audio, or at least a sample of the audio, of those commercials that were activated by the television through the commercial, it activated the microphone on my smartphone and picked it up. I mean, all of that technology <laughs> exists. It does all exist. Is this yeah. a true thing? Is this really Why happening? would a TV be able to emit a tone humans can't hear? What do you mean? It would just be like above our audible threshold. Right, but why, why would a TV, why would a TV need that? So that it can communicate with the other so devices. So specifically, like, specifically for that for that ability. Specifically for that. It would purpose. have to. It sounds yes. con- so, so they're working it with the TV it? makers. Like you got to make, you got to give this TV this extra ability so that we could make not more t- money. Not the TV, Bob. It's embedded in the commercial. No, itself. you're not getting it, dude. Yeah, you're but the getting t- it. TV yeah. speaker needs to have the, that volume. You'd have to build a speaker that could produce right. that tone. volume, that pitch. That, yeah, the pitch. It, yeah, the, the frequency here's the of thing, sound like, that only that humans can't hear. And the dogs... Are- but aren't we going to assume that the band is beyond our hearing because our hearing varies from like young people can hear a lot more tones than old people yeah. so aren't we going to assume that there is actually a wide band that's built into the tv to a certain extent well, how much, well, I, I understand it's not going to be like an extreme tone but right. like there's always going to be a buffer on either side because otherwise yeah but wouldn't your are, dog go crazy yeah, you, though I, your dog does sometimes go cr- well it depends oh, what that if it's explains lower it. yeah. may not go <laughs> crazy what if it's it, lower not higher we need to tune in our dog or all right but evan is this actually happening or is this an urban legend well here's the short answer it the technology does exist but whether it's currently happening right now that's unsubstantiated yeah. but it it apparently has happened <gasps> yeah yes. really it has yeah, happened it Interesting. Has happened. here's what we know so the technology is known as or commonly called cross device tracking. So this is software that shares information from one of your devices to another of your devices, potentially all the devices that you have that are computer-related, internet-connected. It identifies what ads that you're looking at on your smartphone, on your computer, wherever else, and it matches the information with your other objects, your tablet, your laptop, or whatever mm-hmm. else it is. Yeah, Advert- we see that all the time. You're shopping mm-hmm. for something, and then you see ads for it on a completely different device. Now, the advertisers, adver- people in the advertising world, they've developed a lot of techniques for this device matching. The more accurately they can track your activities, the easier it, it is for them to advertise to you. But mm. television's a bit different. It's still a major medium, not necessarily an internet-based device. Yes, we have a lot of smart TVs today, and it's become kind of a, a, a standard thing. But think back in 2013, guys. How many people had their smart TVs up, hooked up? and act- There were fewer, a lot fewer. And those ads ne- really could never re- be that targeted. They just had to use like Nielsen data to figure out how to target to who's watching. It's never individually targeted. That's right. And you would need access to those TV service providers' information to figure out those kinds of metrics, which you can't easily get Mm. so so well what is the tv what are the primary functions displays video and trans and and audio and and you know makes audio so with the advertisements themselves you have to embed a signal in there that a smartphone could recognize right and that would if you could do that that would open a huge stream of data and that is what actually happened the leading company behind it is a technology company called silver push silver push is a feature in the applications that you'll download on your phone that the audio beacon is embedded in, and that's what allows you to sort of connect to other devices 
wirelessly through the internet and so forth. But at the same time, it can also pick up that beacon if it's coming through the audio, which you can't hear, through a television commercial. They they put it in the commercial itself, Bob. Yeah. Right? XYZ company wants to sell their product, embed it with the silver push. Great. Now my television commercial is on TV with the little silver push beacon going out there. Boop, 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 boop. And hey, my smartphone's over here. It also has an app on it. It has the silver push. Now they're talking to each other. And that is gold. Advertisers will pay a company a lot to have that kind of profile. You can go into your phone and look at every um, app that has access to your microphone. And if you see something there that you didn't give permission to or you don't know what it is or what it's doing or why it needs access to your phone, you could your microphone, you could check it out or turn it off. That's right. Always? I don't... mm. you, You can't... I believe you can. You can set the set those kinds of preferences for each each app. Now there mm. might be a malicious app that gets around that those requirements, it. but yeah. but usually they weed those apps out of the store. So if you yeah. don't, right. so like the recommendation is don't buy an app as the moment it comes out. Give like Apple or Google or whatever a couple Several of weeks, weeks. Yeah. to to filter out the malicious apps. But any of the ones that are like standard apps that have been around for a while and have been vetted should not. Do that without without telling you that they're doing it. Now, this was 2013, 2014, which seems like you know a long time ago. And technologically speaking, maybe it was you know five years ago. It, the technology actually gained some traction, and people and organizations quite reasonably started to raise privacy concerns about this technology. I mean, are when you're accepting these apps, are people really giving those apps permissions for on their smartphones to capture TV audio and send it back to a third-party data collection company to sell Probably. to other companies? Nobody reads the terms. Exactly. Nobody reads the terms. In fact, there is a German antivirus security company named uh, Avira, A-V-I-R-A, and they analyzed the Silverpush tracking code, and they found an upsetting level of detailed data being collected and sent insecurely back to Silverpush. Mm. Because of this, Avira's security software detected Silverpush as a Trojan malware. That's how they define it. By early 2016, the Center for Democracy and Technology, they alerted the Federal Trade Commission about these concerns, specifically Silverpush. Eventually, not long after, Federal Trade Commission warned app developers, they sent out a warning to stop using code that listened for sound and beacons to track mobile owners' TV watching habits. What? They just warned people? They warned them. Oh, come on. That's not going to work. That did work. A week later, Silverpush ended its unique audio beacon service. They they claim not because of the FTC, but it was just a business decision. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, plausible deniability. Don't know. It's awfully strange, though. That a week later, they decided to shut it down. So this is the main one that we know about. So, yes, it it has happened. Is it currently happening? I don't know. It could. I mean, maybe it is happening. We don't know about it. They're doing it under the radar per se, or not without all the right permissions, because the FTC is now aware of it and issuing warnings on these things. But as Steve said, it comes down to good digital hygiene, right, Jay? Mm-hmm. I think we've used that term before. And among that is setting the preferences on your apps correctly. Make sure that your phone, your smartphone, which is basically one big tracking device, if you think about it, mm-hmm. it will not automatically turn on the microphone capability to pick up things that you don't want it picking up. 
Yeah. But obviously there are things you can do as an individual to protect yourself. But I also think kind of like the conversation we were having earlier about the obesity issue, there are there's only so much you can do. And I think it is important to, you know, stay keep your eyes open about these kinds of things. It doesn't mean you have to be a conspiracy theorist. But if you actually do care about that trade off between privacy and convenience, just realize that engaging in social media, utilizing these apps that make your life a lot easier, ultimately, the goal for almost all of them, the way they make money is trading in your personal data, because advertisers want to sell you shit. Yeah, that's exactly correct. So do you guys remember not too long ago about the first interstellar object detected? Aumuamua? Aumuamua. Yeah. It's a, it was an a asteroid with maybe a little comet-like features, but not really a comet that was long and cigar-shaped and was tumbling end over end. We didn't spot it until after it already passed by the Earth. If you look at a trajectory map, like like a, you could a map where you're basically looking at the whole solar system, like with the planets, the orbits of the planets and the sun, and the trajectory of Oumuamua, it's like hitting a bullseye, right? Like it just grazes the sun. And if you extrapolate that out to interstellar distances, it's an amazing, um, it was amazingly aimed pretty much right at the sun, you like, know? You're not, but statistically speaking, that should be happening, right? No, statistically, it there was a, it was a hundred million to one shot. Why? Is, why? I'm confused. Why is that so against the probability that things like this, given the vastness of the universe and the number of objects that are out there, you would think something like this is supposed to be happening? But that's the question: How many objects like this are there? Based upon our estimates of how many interstellar objects should be passing through, should be kicked out by other solar systems and therefore be passing through our system, the probability of this object coming that close to the sun was 100 million to one. That's remarkable. Yeah, but you say coming this close to the sun, but I mean, how much did its orbit change due to the gravitational pull of the sun? I mean, it, it wasn't necessarily aimed right at the sun. It could have been aimed... At Earth, no, it but then was slowly, slowly went a little bit closer to the sun because of the gravitational attraction. Now, Bob, being in the inner solar system itself is a hundred million to one. Okay, mm. if you look at that image, it, it gives you some sense of scale, but then you have to like extrapolate orders of magnitude, and you realize that it, it missed the sun by the slightest of round off errors. You know what I mean? It basically was aimed right at the sun, and the probability of that. You know, you you wonder, you begin to understand why that was such a low probability event. Sure, but here's the thing: everything like that's low probability. It's not, but it's not low probability in that that specific thing happened. It's low probability in that anything within that range of the sun happened. For this degree of a close encounter to happen, it, it should happen once every hundred million years, right? That's basically one way to look at it, and. The fact that it happened, it would it was just an amazing cosmic coincidence, like a sure. hundred million to one cosmic coincidence, or 
The alternative is there's a lot more of these objects out there than we think there are. Yeah, we way underestimated the number. We of way objects. underestimated how many of these objects there are. Now that led, if you guys remember, that led a Harvard astronomer to say, "Well, maybe it's neither. Maybe that thing is an alien craft." Aha! Uh-huh, oh yeah, I remember. That. Remember that? Started coming. Yeah, and he was tying that to anomalous, uh, yes. you know, trajectory though. Maybe which, it had which... a solar sail, and right. not the trajectory, the acceleration. It was accelerating. Right, right. So maybe, but. It's not a comet, but maybe it was doing a little bit of outgassing. That's kind of what we figured right. at the end. But he said, oh, maybe it's a solar sail, and it was deliberately aimed at the Earth. But, the, but here's the thing. The, the other answer is that there's just a lot more interstellar objects than we calculated based upon our models of solar system formation. Like these things get kicked out of, the, of early solar systems, and maybe just a lot more of them are getting kicked out than our models predicted. And so – if that's the case, that if that hypothesis is true, that is testable. And the way to test that is to look for more interstellar objects. If we start seeing lots of interstellar objects, well, then that's your answer. It wasn't that big a coincidence. We've just vastly underestimated how many of them there are. And you're about to tell us that there's another one? Yes. I'm about to tell you that we <laughs> identified just two years later, two years later, identified a second potential interstellar object. Hmm. And, you know, you have to follow things over time. And the longer you follow them, the more accurate, more accurate you can plot. You are, it's yeah. course. But, but, the, but luckily, we're seeing this thing on its way into close approach. Oh, it's not, it yeah. didn't already pass. Close approach is going to be in early December. Neat. This Close is approach to what? To the, the Earth. To oh, the Earth. Earth, okay. Gotcha. It's heading our way. This thing is a lot bigger than a Muamua. It's a lot bigger. Uh, it's not going to hit us. It's not going to come okay. any. It's not going to. There's what no is the risk that's going to hit. So I think we're still, again, we're still trying to calculate its exact uh, trajectory. So this is called the, the, the object is more clearly a comet. This is just a full on comet. And mm. it was discovered by an amateur astronomer called Borisov, and the object was named after him. So it's designated – it has a number. Like they all have numbers, but it's being called – nicknamed Borisov after the discoverer. Cool. Cool. So that's one aspect to this, right? We have our second interstellar object that – just two years later. So, okay, that's probably the answer. It's not an alien spacecraft. There's just a lot more of these things than we thought there was. But there's another interesting question now. So because it's get, it's outgassing because it's a comet, right? And it's going to do a lot more of that as it gets closer to the sun. Again, its close approach to the sun is in is in December when it's going to be, you know, putting out the most gas. It, it, is it the same or different than comets in our solar system? Cuz there's a signature, right? There's a signature to the gaseous components of comets in our solar system. And we want to know is our comets all over the galaxy the same or are they different? Chem- you know, chemical? Are we talking about the chemical composition? Yeah. yeah. So how do we? How are we a hundred percent sure that this came from outside of the solar system? Because well, the, of its trajectory. The trajectory. Gotcha. Definitely. Okay. Okay. Yeah. It's it's on a it's uh, it's on a path that is not bound by the sun. Yeah. Like it, it hasn't been rotating around the yeah, sun. Basically, it's not like everything orbiting. Else. Yeah. It's not. Or- yeah. So it's on like a parabolic orbit, not a not an elliptical path, a parabolic path. It'll just get a whip around the sun and go away and leave. It, 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 it's not the, the sun's gravity is not enough to to curve it back in to and to capture it. So it's it's got way too much uh, velocity energy. So it, it it could not have fallen in, for example, from the Oort cloud, which is really the only other place 
that a distant comet would come from would be the Oort cloud. So, yes. so anyway, so whether it's the same as comets from our solar system or it's different, that'll be interesting, right? We'll learn something more about the composition of stuff in the galaxy. Neat. Maybe it came from a more metal poor region of the galaxy. I don't know. You know we'll, we'll see what it shows. Um, and we could use spectral analysis. So we can actually see, you know, what, what it's at, what it's made of, what the gases it's putting out are made of, and we'll be able to compare it. You know, so we're gearing up, we're gearing up, you know, the uh, astronomers around the world for the, the, this one pass of this object. These interstellar objects tend to be going pretty fast. So we got to train our telescopes on it, but we'll have between now and December when it gets its close approach. And then we'll be able to see it as it goes away too. But we'll have, I guess, six months or so of good observing. I wonder how we'll, visible we'll it find. will be. Like the, like the tail, would it have a cometary tail? Will it get close enough to the sun to really have a nice tail? Imagine if it was naked eye visible. I <gasps> yeah, I don't know. Oh, like hail, that would hail be awesome. Oh. Better than goddamn uh, Halley's Comet, which is a total bust. Ugh. <laughs> 86 was Halley's Comet, I think, right? So yeah, the latest good. update is that astronomers are saying this is officially an interstellar object. It's unambiguously okay. interstellar. Nice. So wow. It's no longer potential. It's confirmed. That's sweet. On December 7th, it'll come within 186 million miles of the sun. So about twice the distance as the Earth. We'll be in Melbourne. Yep. Oh, wow. Really? That far? That's the farthest? That's the closest? And it, it, will be visible, it will be visible from the Southern Hemisphere. And <gasps> hey, we'll be in the Southern Hemisphere. Bob! Yeah. Bob! Whoa, whoa, wait, what kind of visible? What kind of telescope do you need? Or Steve, come on. Or without or the details, what the hell, man? <laughs> Oh my gosh! Yeah, we, so we 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 make it we may get a chance to see it. Holy crap! Oh, we have to go. The, us and the entire conference will go outside that evening and try to look for it. I hope. I hope it's it's within our visuals range. Oh my gosh! No clouds. No clouds. No clouds in the right direction. Right, you have to be yeah unobstructed view of the correct direction. Ooh, cool, cool, cool. All right, Jay, it's who's that noisy time? Okay, last week I played this noisy. Liquid. I mean, like any guesses? It's a rocket launching Could an explosion. Be a rocket. I, I think the Challenger, but not that's not exactly it, but that's what comes to mind. Justice Smith sent in a guess. He said, hey, Jay, is someone using a jet propane torch to light some fireworks, which then explode? That is not correct, but it is a very good guess because you explained that crazy noise at the end, which I noticed all of you heard this time. Another listener named Mark Constantine said, Hi, that sounds like an axe or knife getting sharpened on a grinding stone or possibly some sort of stone grain grinder. It reminds me of the old stone grinders I saw people in markets in Korea using the, to grind grain. So <laughs> that's that's a pretty interesting guess. I can, I can hear that as well. Um, I have sharpened a knife or two in my day, uh, but that is also not correct. I have another guess. I have a few more guesses here. Uh, Patrick McComb said, love the show. I'm guessing this is a, re- a recording from inside a launching toy rocket. Hmm. And he, he kind of agrees with you guys, but that is also not correct. But we do have a winner. Now, before I announce the winner, anybody want to do another last ditch guess? I'll give you a really big hint now since we're at the bitter end here. Ready? Here, this, this noise is the most important part of it. Ready? That noise actually made several listeners say, 
I was I didn't know I wasn't hundred percent sure until I heard that noise at the end. Slow motion flatulence. Uh, one of those, <laughs> one of those vaping cigarettes exploding. A listener named Derek Reithens said, "Hi, this sounds like a curling stone sliding on ice and at the end hitting the other stones." Oh, no. hey, curling! I love curling. If you don't know what curling is, you should definitely look it up because it's it's kind of visual. But it's like a a shuffleboard, a shuffleboard. But the the curling stone has a handle on it, and it's heavy and they're big and. Um, there are two sweepers that will tune the ice so the curling stone goes in the direction that they want it to go in. And then, of course, it can hit other curling stones, like like Evan said, like shuffleboard. But my God, don't things sound like other things. Yes. It, just, it really blows my mind. I've learned a big lesson. Very humiliating. Uh, I mean, humbling. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's, there's a difference. There's Same route, though. Same route. Yeah, so that noise he was sent in by Patrick John Stone. You think it's a, it's a coincidence that his last name is Stone? I don't think so. <laughs> so I have a new noisy for everybody. This noisy is really cool. Um, I hope that I get as many cool guesses to this noisy as I got this past week. Man, did I get a lot of guesses and a lot of variation in the guesses. It was really fun. And I thought I'd say this. I listen to every single noisy that people send in. I can't use the vast majority of them for lots of different reasons. A lot of times it's the recording quality or the noise itself isn't loud enough, although it's provocative. Uh, but sometimes it just doesn't hit all the check marks that a noise needs to. But that should not dissuade you. If, if you sent up something in in the past and I didn't use it, just send, you know, don't be mad. Don't be sad. Just send something else in. You'll get there eventually. And it is a lot of fun. I, I really enjoy going through all the noises every week and, and getting to, uh, to chit-chat with a few people here and there. So, guys... This one is cool. I think you'll really enjoy it. <laughs> I like the hey. <laughs> that's that's the uh, that's the chanting that's going on in the background during awesome. during eyes wide shut the orgy scene. <laughs> <laughs> if yeah. this is another talking sea creature, I'm gonna lose my shit. You're right, because it is <laughs> it is shit losable. If it's another yet another <laughs> sea creature that can. <laughs> uh, this was sent in by a listener named Les Olhauser, and I'm gonna warn everybody right now. This is literally this is how bad it is. When I do the reveal on what this thing is, there is somebody's name that is attached to this sound that I can't pronounce. So mm-hmm. get used to it, okay? Because I'm just <laughs> gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna slice and dice this name up to ribbons next week, and you're gonna laugh, but please don't, don't, you know, hate me for it. Or you can look it up. I, I Steve, I already tried. The person, <laughs> this is really funny because the guy that sent it in, um, Les actually said pretty much, "Good luck with the name," and he laughed. That's how bad it is. <laughs> So we had this really cool thing happen to us at Nexus. So we're, we are all friends with Brian Wecht, and you, you might know that Brian Wecht is a physicist. He also is one of the people that are in the band called Ninja Sex Party. And what's really cool was Brian joined us for the Skeptical Extravaganza. Do you guys remember this? Oh, yeah. That was a lot of fun. Heck, yeah. Yeah. And, if, and George. Hi, George. Oh, hi. Oh, hey. I didn't see you there. I'm sorry. I'm in the corner. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> I, hope it's so, okay. I, just, I often stand here in the back. I don't know if you even realize that, but so but sure I everybody, because you know Brian's a Brian's a friend of mine. You know Brian and I went to that same high school. My dad was his science teacher. 
How cool is that? Oh, wow. That is nuts. I know. When I found that out from you, I'm like, what? This is such a small world. You know, like, totally. how weird is that? Totally. So, so Brian joined us for the Skeptical Extravaganza. We had a great time. And after the show, Brian said, guys, you know what? This show is really good. And I think that you guys should talk to the touring company that I work with, that they might be able to work with you. So long story short, we call them up. And over the past three months, we have been working with them to build the Skeptical Extravaganza Tour. We are taking the Extravaganza on tour. It's going to be the entire SGU crew, and George is is the leader of the band, so to speak. He is the MC. He is the person running the entire thing. If you don't know what the Extravaganza is, it is a it, at its core. It's a, it's a comedy show. It's a show where we, we make fun of science and critical thinking. We do demonstrations. We talk about psychological things. Um, there's a lot of fun improv things that we do, uh, easy, easy bits for the audience to understand and get, you know, relate to. We talk about pop culture. Um, so it's, a, it's a basically a two-hour show where we just go for it, and it's a ton of fun, and every single show is different. Just just because of the improv, yeah, matter. yeah, the content is never the same, even if the, even if the format is the same. So we are announcing hereby right now. Hereby, you know, as you know, George, when somebody says hereby, it means like this is serious. It's official. It's got the big scripty H that you can barely even tell is an H. Do it. <laughs> we are announcing. So our tour starts when we are on the first leg of our New Zealand Australia trip. We're going to L.A. <gasps> the, all of the information for you will be on skepticsguide.eventbrite.com you'll see basically all of our private show recordings there and then next week we will be uh, opening up tickets for the Skeptical Extravaganza tour um, it'll start with our first date in LAX and the other dates are, are firm but we have to you know put all the details in so to make this less confusing if you're interested in seeing us at a private show we're going to have one in LA, one in New Zealand, and one in Melbourne. Then you could go to skepticsguide.eventbrite.com, and all that information will be there for you. It's very easy. And then if you're interested in coming to see us on our tour in a city near you, especially if you're in LA, then you we will announce next week, and George will be also announcing this on his show, the place where you could go purchase tickets for that. And, of course, we will be talking a lot more about this as the weeks roll by. So the first one will be Saturday, November 23rd. In Los Angeles at the Dynasty Typewriter venue that starts at 2.30. And then we have a, an, an event booked Friday, January 31st in Pittsburgh at the Rex Theater. Saturday, February 1st in Philadelphia at the, is that Perlman? Is that how you pronounce that? Perlman? That's right. And then Sunday, February 2nd in Brooklyn at the Bell House. And we have Several other dates that we are currently looking for, but we haven't confirmed yet. But these these are all in the Northeast. That's sort of where we're focusing our initial touring, except for the L.A. one, because we're all going to be in L.A. as we're traveling to New Zealand and Australia. Do you guys know how exciting this is? Yes. Yeah. yeah, Like Philadelphia (laughs) and New York, but Brooklyn. We're doing the show. We're going on the road. We're putting a band together, guys. We're going to not, not only paint the barn, we're going to put the barn on the back of a van and take it with us. It's so <laughs> <exciting>. <laughs> no, it's really cool. It's one of those things like I didn't believe any of it all the way through the process. I'm like, this is really going well. This is great. This is, wow, this is really like, you know, and then finally, like, it's Come happening. Together. It's definitely happening. So please do come check us out, guys. Um, we are going to be probably doing all the all the major cities up and down the eastern seaboard. We absolutely will be traveling to uh, 
the California side of the world. And if you have an idea about us possibly doing this show in your city, especially if you have a skeptical community, let us know. We'd love to talk to you about it. You can email us at info at the skepticsguide.org with the, the uh, subject line extravaganza, and I'll definitely chit-chat with you if you like. George. Help, us, help us kick off these first couple of shows we have to show that this is a viable kind of uh, 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 idea. You know, really, let's fill those theaters in Pittsburgh. Let's fill it up in Brooklyn and in Philadelphia. Get as many friends and as many fans mm-hmm. as we possibly can to show that not only is this a great idea, but it's going to be fun and a viable business model. Yay. <laughs> right. That, <laughs> right. Will, that will help. And, yeah, so just to keep an eye out for the city, so because we're negotiating for Boston uh, for uh, other cities DC. in the for DC, other cities in the Northeast, and uh, we're looking at venues. We're going to be in Portland in February, and so we're looking to book Portland and Seattle venues uh, in February. So keep, keep an eye out for those as well. And again, these the tickets for the ones we've already booked are will come on sale next Friday. Uh, that's October fourth. October fourth, they'll come on sale. But but keep checking back, and we'll keep updating you when new cities get locked in. George, yes. You're running this thing. This is this is you know you're the host of this show. Now let me ask you, you a question. Go for it. I mean, how do you do it? How do you how do you write all the content and, and pull this thing off? I don't know how you do it. Brilliantly, that's how I do it. <laughs> With a plum and a peach and some vigor. No man, this is so much fun. I, I I'm so excited. I'm so like you were saying. It was kind of like it came together almost too quickly. It was almost too easy in the in the yeah. negotiations. And now we have dates on the books. And, and it's just so exciting. I, I'm, I'm, I'm pumped that, that if you were the kind of person that wants to travel from Pittsburgh to Philly to Brooklyn and see all three shows, all three shows will be different. They're, 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 mm-hmm. they're similar, but they're different at the same time. You can see us in L.A. and you can see us in Brooklyn and have a completely different night on both nights and enjoy it in, uh, in just unique ways. I love writing this show. I love putting you guys through all kinds of embarrassing rigmaroles, that, that to me is the most exciting. <laughs> Thanks, George. Guys, that's basically the show. Is, it, yeah, George humiliating the SGU. That's yes, essentially what that's, the show that was going to be. That's the working title. That's the working <laughs> title. <laughs> So. But we came up with, you know, we rewrote this show. We rebuilt it from the ground up. I mean, we love the show as is, but we, we decided that we wanted to give it a really strong backbone of critical thinking. So we're going to be talking about um, the human brain and your senses and how you can't, you know, all the things that we talk about on the show, but we'll be doing it in, in the, the form of fun and entertaining demonstrations. In, yeah, in a fun vaudeville format. Yeah. <laughs> Um, yeah, maybe you have a relative or a friend who like doesn't understand why you listen to the SG week after week after week, and you want to explain to them like what these guys, what this program, what this line of thinking is about. Bring them to the show, and they'll go, "Oh, I get it now. Okay, I understand. This is this is what this is about. It's not all just heady wordplay, but it can be fun like like this. So it's a great opportunity for non non self labeled skeptics to come to the show. So bring everybody you possibly can. George, we're actually like this is this is legit. Like we're working with you now i'm so psyched about this no i know it only took 10 years but here we go yeah and i will say this not only did george make me cry the day that we met george makes me cry at least every other extravaganza yeah yeah that's mm-hmm. part of the part of the goal so, humiliation <laughs> and tears for in a novella live on stage across the country Looking forward to it, George. So, yeah, the so first much. one, our inaugural show will be for the new, like, version 2.0, because we've done this a bunch of times. It's been great every time. And there's yeah. a lot of that's similar, but this is sort of version 2.0 that's that right. will be launching in L.A. on November 23rd. So we'll see you there. We'll see you there. Thanks, guys. You got Bye-bye. it, Bye-bye.
All right, one really quick email, and then we're going to go on to science or fiction. This comes from Mark Prince from Atlanta, and he writes, You have a great thought-provoking show. I don't think I'd heard you talk about survivorship bias. I found an example below, but could you give the fans some more examples? So, yeah, very quickly, what is survivorship bias? Uh, it's a nice little thing that you know interferes with the way we think about data and information. It's essentially dead men tell no tales, right? If mm-hmm. uh, the only if you're only counting the people who survive, then that biases the data that you're looking at. So uh, we see this in medicine all the time. A classic example from my own specialty: if we look at, for example, the uh, effects of uh, of a medication on stroke, uh, and let's say that the medication increases the risk of stroke, but uh, when we do the study, it looks like it decreases the risk of stroke. Well, how would that happen? Uh, well, if people taking the medication have more heart attacks and die, they're not around to have their stroke. We're only seeing the survivors, mm-hmm. right? So that's why we have to look at stroke-free survival. You can't just look at stroke incidents because you, you know what I mean? So you have to count people who also people who die from their heart attack. So whenever you're, you're – or I, I remember like one time people said, oh, parents are so careful today with their car seats and this and that. When we were kids, we didn't have any of those things and we were fine. It's like, yeah, we're alive. The, are the people who – the kids who died are not around to, to think back upon their childhood. Yeah, um, it so was that, a filter. We survived the filter. There's a filter, right. So that's another survivorship bias. You know, it's a, just one of the many biases that are introduced as a confounding factor whenever you're looking at data in uh, retrospectively or epidemiologically where you're not controlling all the variables experimentally, right? So when you're doing any kind of observational study, this is just one of many types of biases that can influence if you don't think very carefully about how you're gathering the data. You have to make sure you're looking at everybody, not just counting the people who are around. To, yeah, and yeah. I think that's an important point you made too because sometimes we use the term loosely. We don't always talk about people who died during the study. Like sometimes we're even talking about dropouts of a study yeah. or you know people who just aren't involved in the conversation anymore. Right. It just, they don't have to have could be yeah, survived metaphor, life. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're not, not literally alive. You know, they, they could have been filtered out in other ways exactly Mm. um they survive in the study or whatever or they survive in the school or they're still taking the intervention or whatever there's just yeah they're they're still around to be counted when people that were filtered out are not and there's lost data that biases the outcome all right let's move on to science or fiction it's time for science or fiction Each week, I come up with three science news items or facts, two real and one fake, and then I challenge my panel of skeptics to tell me which one is the fake. Just three regular news items. Are you guys ready for these three regular news items? Yes, sir. All right. Mm -hmm. Here we go. Item number one. Astrophysicists have proposed a workable model for gamma ray bursts that involves them exceeding the speed of light without breaking the laws of physics. Item number two, scientists have been able to genetically engineer protein in cells 
rendering them sufficiently magnetic to be manipulated by an external magnetic field. And item number three, a new analysis finds that a Mars colony could be self-sufficient for food for one million people within 100 years. That means 100 years of after the beginning of the colony. We know what that means. <laughs> well, it could have meant 100 years from now. You're right. Never mind. <laughs> All right, Bob, go first. Oh, yay. <laughs> you haven't gone first in a while, Bob, I don't think. What the hell am I supposed to do with this one? So astrophysicists. Good <laughs> start. So, so they got a model for gamma ray bursts that involved them exceeding the speed of light without breaking the laws of physics. What does that even mean? Gamma ray bursts, perhaps they're warping space around them. What am I, what am I supposed to do with that? I can't think of any <laughs> mechanism. <laughs> there could be something stupid. There could be something really stupid like, oh, let's look at the other ones and let's see. Um, <laughs> you got protein incels magnetic enough so you could switch them around with a magnet outside the skin. That's kind of cool. Yeah, sure. I mean, it seems reasonable. It doesn't seem to break any laws of physics. Anyway, <laughs> Mars Colony. Um, sure, I mean, a million people within a century, but using what technology? Um, and what about, what is it, the, um, what is it in the in Martian soil that's not good? Um, there's some stuff in there that's just not amenable to growing stuff. Um, but they could potentially, they could, it means with a P. Um, but, I mean, a new analysis, sure, I mean, that's, not nearly as egregious as something exceeding the speed of light, like the, like a gamma ray burst. Perchlorate. Yes, I was right about the P. Um, <laughs> ah, screw it. I'll say that's fiction. I can't. I can't think of any reason. Just you, you said it. You know. All right. I know. You said, I said it. it. Whatever. Not. Whatever. He's going to screw me on this. You're screwed. All right, Evan. You mentioned in this speed of light one and the gamma ray burst workable model. That's real interesting. It's not just theory it's not just right on paper the math the, you know workable model that's big so that's that's why i'm leaning kind of towards that one is also well it is on paper it's a model uh, on paper it's not they didn't reproduce a gamma ray no, burst i get i get that but they've you know done more than just say it, they, they've taken it i think what you're saying by that workable model implies a step above just yeah, they did all the it. math and it all works out. Yeah, they, they they yeah they worked it through. They didn't just think about it. Yeah, I'm leaning towards that one being the fiction as well. But um, genetically engineering protein in cells, the protein inside the cells, rendering them sufficiently magnetic. What? How? What? What's going on there? In the protein of the cells, can you do this with? And then ex and then manipulated by an external magnetic field. I mean, if the speed of light thing. It's making a little more sense to me than this external magnetic field in proteins. Oh, that's not good. So those are two fictions. And then uh, the Mars colony, self-sufficient food for a million people, 100 years. Uh, sh okay, that one's just an analysis, all right, working model. I, I think that one's going to be a correct one. Oh, gosh. So protein cells, external magnetic fields. Gosh, I just don't see it. But we're, it's so stressful. It's terribly stressful. I'm I'm sorry, Bob. I'm going to go with this external magnetic field one. It's it's my gut feeling one, and I'm just going to go with my gut. I I don't like either of them though. I think go they're both with fiction. The okay, Kara. Maybe just to spread things out a bit, I might go with the Mars thing. I feel like these are like numbers, very specific numbers, 
And also, it's, you know, really far away. Everything would have to be built from scratch. It would all have to be terraformed. It would have... And when you said within 100 years, do you mean of the first people arriving or of like a colony being like developed? Of of the first people touching their feet down on Mars. Yeah. Yeah, I feel like it's... It seems reasonable at first blush, but when you really start to think about it, I bet you it's more like a thousand people within a hundred years mm-hmm. instead of a million or something like that, or 10,000. Um, so I'm going to say that that's the fiction. Oh. All right. So they're all spread out, Jay. What do you think? <laughs> so the first one about the astrophysicists uh, saying that they have the, this gamma ray burst that involves them exceeding the speed of light. You know, this could very easily be explained, Steve, by uh, gravitational waves warping the space-time fabric. You know, I'm I'm very comfortable with this now since I did a news item on it this wow. week. I don't know how they're, they're what they're talking about here actually or how, <laughs> uh, but it's it just sounds fun when you calmly state something. You know, people will think, oh, he knows what he's talking about. <laughs> Confidence. The second one here, though, I do have a bone to pick with the one here about the uh, genetically engineering proteins so they become magnetic. I I'm really not agreeing with this one, and I think because I'm going last. I think I, I think I know what Steve did here. I don't think that this is about cells. I think this is about nanoparticles. Um, that's what I think Steve changed. I think this one, I don't think that cells can be become magnetic themselves. I think that they'd have to be infused with something else to become magnetic. Um, and this last one about Mars colony, absolutely. 100 years, uh, within 100 years, feed a million people on Mars. Yeah. I mean, I'm playing a... a Mars simulator game right now. And yeah, I'm feeding like, you know, 300 million people. So no big deal. Um, <laughs> so I'm going to say, say that the middle one is the fake. The one about the external magnetic field hubbub. That's not true. Okay. So you guys are all spread out. So I will take them in order. Uh, number one, astrophysicists have proposed a workable model for gamma ray bursts that involves them exceeding the speed of light without breaking the laws so of happy. physics. He sounds so happy. Because Bob is sighing while I'm I know, and you're giggling. I'm I love like, it. I don't know what's going on with this one. <laughs> Bob thinks this one is the fiction, and this one is science. It's science. <laughs> How is. is that? How the hell is that? What is wrong with you, Bob? <laughs> so, so what's the, all right what, what is, it? is it what what's the gimmick here what's the gimmick yeah, what do gimmick. you think yeah there's no warp field it's not warping space but the gamma ray bursts are not traveling in a vacuum they're traveling through a through a you know a gas cloud they're going faster than the speed of light in the gas cloud but not faster than the speed of light in a vacuum and it technically doesn't break einstein's law oh that's such bullshit I, so <laughs> Is that what you're going to argue with these astrophysicists? <laughs> no, I'm just, I'm, I'm just the way you, the way you wrote it. I sometimes will leave out key pieces of information. That doesn't make it wrong. It's just that you have to infer. Uh, I, dis- I disagree. With you that. have to infer what's missing. <laughs> yeah, see that, Bob? <laughs> no, nah, that's that's really not fair. But yeah, whatever. no, it sucks when you you fail miserably. <laughs> so they say that they, it, it 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 explains observed data better than previous models. So, however, it does introduce a new thing that they didn't previously know. It does involve Cherenkov radiation. Bobby, you know about Cherenkov yeah, radiation? Yeah, sure. Yeah. Yep, a type of light created by superluminal motion uh, that was not previously thought to be generated, to be, ge- to, uh, to be important in generating the light curves of gamma ray bursts. So it does make a prediction about what we might observe in future gamma ray bursts. 
but it does. Yeah, like uh, a like a gamma ray burst needs to be more deadly. Yeah, let's throw in some Cherenkov radiation on top yeah. of it. You know, it'll right. fry your whole planet, and the beam is probably could be like a light year wide. But uh, <laughs> yeah, throw some extra nastiness in the. So the, the, they say the older models, the older gamma ray burst models, neglected time reversible light curve properties. Their model explains it, but then it introduces the Cherenkov radiation. So, you know, we'll see what what the net effect of, the, of those two things are. But yeah, the key is always that is that it's traveling faster than light in a medium, not a vacuum. Um, okay. Let's go to number two. Scientists have been able to genetically engineer protein in cells, rendering them sufficiently magnetic to be manipulated by an external magnetic field. Jay and Evan, you think this one is the fiction. But before I give you the answer, do you guys, either of you guys know about ferritin? Have you ever heard the term ferritin? Well, F-E-R, fer, implies iron Iron. or metal. Yes, that's right. No, it's metal that ferrets produce in their cages. (laughs) Yes, that's right. right. So ferritin is a protein Mm -hmm. that actually is like a cage, Jay, although it's not a ferret cage. It's a cage-structured protein that corrals a bunch of iron, Mm -hmm. perhaps a million atoms of iron, and it's important in making uh, hemoglobin for for blood, right? So, yeah, so so the Uh the idea was to genetically engineer um, a protein to hold so much iron it would respond to an external magnetic field. Yep. Crap. It was the idea, but... But... There <laughs> we go. Damn. They didn't, they didn't quite do it. This one is the fiction. Um, what they did do was they made this crystalline structure that was able to hold orders of magnitude more ferritin with iron in one location, but they weren't able to get the iron into the crystals in the cells. So they weren't able to do it inside the cells. They had to break open the cells and then cram the iron into the crystals. So it was really just a proof of concept that these crystals could hold enough enough iron in order to be manipulated by an external magnetic field, but they couldn't make them inside the cell. Would I die of iron toxicity if something like that were in my blood? Not if it's all sequestered in these crystals. Oh, okay. But the the ferritin itself is like a million times too weak to be manipulated by an external magnetic field. I see. So, yeah, we need to increase the ferromagnicity of the proteins by a million fold in order to get this to work. Uh, So that was what the idea was with the crystals. And it does work. Those crystals could be manipulated, but you can't. They just can't get the iron inside them inside a living cell. They had to kill the cell and break open the crystals and and put the iron in there. So it didn't quite work the way they were hoping. Okay, all this means that a new analysis finds that a Mars colony could be self-sufficient for food for 1 million people within 100 years is also science. Yes. Science. Sorry, Kara. So the analysis, the title of the analysis is Feeding one million people on Mars. But press releases could we feed one million people? <laughs> Steve, on Mars? it's like that book, How to Feed. How to cook. Four, oh yeah, how to cook humans. humans. How to cook four humans. Four forty humans. <laughs> um, so they they were just a thought experiment. Like, could we theoretically um, could a Mars colony ramp up its food production so that it could feed a growing colony that grows to about the size of a million people? And they concluded that they could get there within about 100 years. Uh, but it would take a vast investment in, in the food production infrastructure uh, in order to do that. And during that 100 years, you would need to import a lot of food from Earth 
to actually, when you look at it that way, you know, take a hundred years to get to self-sufficient. Um, and until then, you're dependent upon a lifeline, you know, from a very distant planet. But that, so they, they you know, looked at what would the energy use be? What would the inputs need to be in terms of water and fertilizer and everything? And how would they be growing this, this food? In their model, uh, we are growing vegetables, you know, produce, staple crops, basically. Also insect production, lots of insects, and also cell, cellular agriculture, so like lab-grown meat. Uh, so though that was their model. Insects, lab-grown meat, and staple crops. Oh, great. Uh, so yeah, with, it, with an unlimited budget, of course we could do that. Yeah, with a big budget, I mean, it would be infinite, <laughs> but yes, it would, it, would be, it would be very expensive. And uh, while you're ramping up industrialized food production on Mars, you know, it would be, you'd have to import a lot of food. Yeah, we're not um, even doing lab-grown meat on Earth yet because yeah. it's too expensive. But Right. Okay. Oh, yeah. This is, away there's at nothing, it. Cheap, nothing cheap about this. Yeah. Yeah. It was just theoretically, could we get there? Um, and they said, yeah, Mars could support a colony of a, of a million people. I'm never going to be okay eating bugs, and that's it. It's my final statement on well, that. I don't mind bug- bugs. I'm going to sneak you. I'm going to make something one day with cricket flour, and you won't notice. Yeah, I will. But, Are when, you- but when you tell me what will happen is I will completely like, lose Puke. it. Will you? Are you allergic to shellfish? No, I'm allergic to fun. Okay, just making sure, because I don't want to accidentally poison you. Well, you, can you not eat crickets if you're allergic Mm-mm. to shellfish? Yeah, there seems to be chitin. something. If you yeah. eat crickets, no, there's something give you crickets? Conserved in it no, that um, you might be allergic to. Kara, if you feed me a cricket and all night all I hear is a goddamn chirping, I'm coming for you. <laughs> That's how that works. <laughs> yeah, if you have a crustacean allergy, you may be allergic to crickets. But I'm not sure exactly crickets. what it is that you're allergic to. Crickets. Crickets. But I don't know why. I don't either. It's I don't even know a derivative. Yeah. Anyway, whatever. Go on. Yep, here we go. Crustaceans <laughs> are insects of the sea. They're, yes, they are. Exactly. But I, I don't know if it's arthropods. I, I doubt it's because you're allergic to chitin. I mean, it must be something else. Yeah, whatever. They're, they're, closely, yeah. They're, they're quote unquote closely related. They're all arthropods. Yeah. All right, Evan, give us a quote. All right. Tonight's quote is in honor of those 75 people who made it to the gates of Area 51. This goes out to you. UFOs, the reliable cases are uninteresting, and the interesting cases are unreliable. Carl Sagan. <laughs> love I, I love that formulation of an of a observation that reminds me of, like, what is unique to chiropractic doesn't work. And what chiropractors do that works is not unique. <laughs> yeah. It's the same thing, nice. you know, it kind of puts it, it's a very pithy way of putting things into clear focus. All right. Well, thank you, Evan, and thank you all for joining me this week. Sure. You're welcome, Thanks, Steve. Steve. Thanks, Steve. And until next week, this is your Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Skeptic's Guide to the Universe is produced by SGU Productions dedicated to promoting science and critical thinking. For more information, visit us at theskepticsguide.org. Send your questions to info at theskepticsguide.org. And if you would like to support the show and all the work that we do, go to patreon.com slash skepticsguide and consider becoming a patron and becoming part of the SGU community. Our listeners and supporters are what make SGU possible. 